Okay, give me one second here. My notes seem to have died. All right, so um, here we go. Okay, uh, I want to begin this evening uh, saying hello to all of our church members that could not be here tonight. Uh, for whatever reason, um, this particular evening is the evening that uh, everyone is facing um, issues. Uh, we have one family that had uh, a medical emergency, so they are not able to be with us. Um, another family with a uh, flat tire, so they're not able to be with us. Um, another family um, sick, they're not able to be with us. Um, and uh, we wouldn't have Lydia here and Daryl had my wife not gotten to get them because of a uh, dead battery. Uh, <laughs> so tonight seems to be the night that uh, everyone is facing stuff. Um, so I want to say hello to our church uh, watching at home. Uh, we are continuing this evening our series through First John, the Light Walkers series. Uh, we're going verse by verse through the book of First John. This is going to take us about 12 weeks, so buckle up. Uh, we're examining what it means to walk in the light. We began in the series by talking about who John is. John is the best friend of Jesus. He's writing to the persecuted church in 85 AD, in the first century. And the gospel that he shares in this book comes from direct, first-hand experience, not second-hand oral tradition. He says, That which I've seen with my own eyes, that which I have heard with my own ears, that which I have touched with my own hands... What I have seen from God in the flesh himself, that is the message that I am sharing with you. And so he begins by talking about the fact that this uh, 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 invitation to walk in the light is offered to every single person in the world. And that we who walk in the light are also to be those who share that light. We're called to shine the light in the darkness. Uh, I think my Bible is sitting on the back there. Would you mind bringing that to me, Gerald? Oh, that's the least Christian thing I've done all day. Um, so he begins, thank you, sir. Give Daryl a hand, will you? Yeah. Uh, he begins by explaining that God is light. And so every one of his attributes flows from that light. Marisol, I used your bookmarker here in my Bible. Um, God is light, and so every single attribute that he has flows from that light. But sin is like a temporary eclipse uh, that blocks the light of the sun. Um, how about you go sit down, babe? No, I yeah. want to be with you. I know you want to be with me. Go with mommy. Jesus is the perfect go-between that brings us back into fellowship with the Father. And so tonight we're going to uh, start in chapter 2 explaining a little bit more about that truth. So let's begin this evening where most good sermons begin, and that is with Jimmy Kimmel. 
Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with Jimmy Kimmel. He is, of course, the host of Jimmy Kimmel Live, the flagship late-night talk show uh, show on uh, ABC. I personally prefer The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, uh, but I will admit that Jimmy Kimmel has some very funny bits. Uh, one of them is called Unnecessary Censorship, uh, in which he takes clips from various TV programs and he bleeps out words that aren't curse words, but the way that he bleeps them makes them seem like they are. And I realize that that reveals my lack of maturity, that I find that so funny. Uh, then there's a segment called Mean Tweets, which is where celebrities read tweets about themselves out loud. And of course, the catch is that these tweets are really, really mean. And so they're reading mean tweets about themselves. But undoubtedly, my favorite segment on Jimmy Kimmel Live is called Lie Witness News. Uh, Lie Witness News helps us celebrate the stupidity of the human race. Um, has anyone seen this segment, Lie Witness News, on, on the Jimmy Kimmel show? No? Okay, here's the deal. I watched way too many of them this week, uh, spent a lot of time watching the various <laughs> Lie Witness News clips, and since you haven't seen it, you need to, all right? You need to go this week and watch these segments. Uh, here's how it works. One of Jimmy Kimmel's assistants will go out onto the street, normally uh, right there in Hollywood, and they will act like they are a reporter or a news correspondent. And they'll interview people on the street and record these interviews on camera. And, and here's the catch. The reporter, the, the news correspondent, is always completely fabricating a news story and asking for the people's thoughts on this completely fake event. It is entirely made up. But over and over, people respond pretending that they know exactly what the person is talking about, acting like they have seen or heard uh, this event. For example, uh, one particular episode was called Lie Witness News Oscars Edition. In this particular uh, episode, the reporter asks people about entirely fabricated movies or scenes from movies. So movies or scenes that do not exist, and he asks them what their thoughts were on these particular movies or scenes. For example, in this episode, a reporter asked, Did you see the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood where Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers? And the person's like, yeah, yeah, I saw it. It was a great movie. And he says, were you surprised with the opening scene, the, the violent bank robbery where Mr. Rogers is holding the smoking gun? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I saw it. It, 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 it caught me off guard. And I was like, you know, I'm not really here for that, but, you know, it was kind of exhilarating. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this is a bit much for the kids, but, but yeah, it was cool. Of course, this is entirely made up. That is not in a movie. Another episode called 2019 Edition uh, featured fake news stories in the year 2019. And uh, it begins with a reporter asking a man about the biggest news event of the year, in which North Korea and South Korea came together to make peace. And the man says, yeah, yeah, I watched that live on TV. It was awesome. Uh, I thought it was great how, how President Trump went out there and, uh, and got them to settle their differences. And the reporter's like, yeah, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> Sometimes when you're watching this segment, 
probably most of the times when you're watching this segment, you are alarmed at just how dumb some people are. It's alarming how stupid some people are. Uh, For example, in the episode MLK edition, uh, the reporter asks people about the ongoing Twitter feud between Donald Trump and Martin Luther King Jr. And more than one person responds by saying, yeah, they need to just settle their differences and stop fighting. They, They need to make up. At one point, the reporter asks uh, if Trump should be upset that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't show up to his inauguration. And the guy is like, I mean, maybe, maybe MLK had a good reason for not being there. I don't think, I don't think Trump should, should be mad about that. And, then, and the reporter's like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe MLK has a good reason for not being there. Maybe he had a, a family thing. And the guy's like, yeah, maybe he had a family thing going on, you know, maybe a, a, a wedding. And the reporter goes... Or a funeral? And he's like, yeah, yeah, maybe a funeral. Whatever the reason, he should just calm down. Uh, in another episode uh, called Wakanda Edition, uh, the reporter asks about the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Wakanda and whether or not the United States should intervene. Then there's Canada edition, in which a reporter asks people their opinion on Canada becoming the 51st state. In the Christopher Columbus Supreme Court edition, uh, the reporter asks people what they think about Christopher Columbus being Trump's nomination to the Supreme Court. And uh, they ask, do they agree with this particular nomination? Porter says, do you think the fact that Christopher Columbus discovering America is a good enough reason for him to be nominated to the Supreme Court? And the person says, uh, you know, I'd say yes, but I don't know what the reason would be. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and the guy's like, uh, what do you mean by that? And, and this, this person goes, well, you know, I feel like we've been celebrating him for so long. You know, maybe he deserves... You know, a, a chance. And the guy's like, yeah, we, we have been celebrating him a long time. He's been around a while. feels like, like 500 years. The guy's like, yeah, it, it has been a while, hasn't it? Um, again, if, if you haven't seen it, please watch these on YouTube. It is comedy gold because there's no limit to what people will make up in the moment. Um, but among my favorites are the episodes that have to do with sporting events or sports teams. Now, I'm sure that any of us can think of bandwagon fans. We've probably seen uh, in, in our lives many times bandwagon fans, people who suddenly start rooting for a team when they're good, when they're successful, and they act like they've been real fans the whole time. And the thing is, they don't know the first thing about this team, and in some cases, they don't even know about the sport itself. So, for example, in Golden State Warriors edition of Live Witness News, Kimmel had a reporter go out on the streets of Oakland, California, to interview people wearing Golden State Warriors apparel. This was right before the Warriors were to play in the NBA Finals in 2015. So, as usual, the reporter begins to ask people questions about entirely made-up players or basketball strategies that don't exist, revealing that these so-called diehard fans 
have no idea about the team that they so-called root for. For example, he asks one person, do you think the Cavs losing Zayn Malik will affect the Cavs' one-direction defense? Of course, Zayn Malik is a, was a singer in one direction, not a Cavs player. And the guy's like, no, I really don't think so. I, I, think, I think their one-direction defense will be just fine without him. Uh, he asks, do you think the Warriors are going to start L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard, of course, is the founder of Scientology, circa 1950. The guy goes, no, no, in, in my opinion, no, they, they, they won't start him. Well, why not? I just don't think he does that well under pressure. Okay? He asks another guy, what was your reaction to the news this morning that LeBron James is changing his name to Michael Jordan? And the guy's like, man, I was surprised. I saw it on TV this morning, and I just thought, why would he do that? But maybe marketing, I guess. It's a smart marketing move. Uh, Then there finally is the World Cup edition. Um, the Team USA soccer team played in the World Cup in 2014. And uh, they had a fairly decent run. They ended up being knocked out by Belgium. Um, and so Kimmel went out to find diehard fans of United States soccer, uh, if that is such a thing. I don't know if that exists in real life. But he goes out and asks people how they think Landon Donovan played. Uh, spoiler alert, he didn't. Donovan was cut from the team before the World Cup. But that didn't stop people from giving their very real opinions about how Landon Donovan played. One fan claimed to watch when Landon Donovan took an elbow to the nose and then got up and kept playing. Another claimed that he witnessed Landon Donovan do a tricycle kick, uh, a move that doesn't exist, he saw him do a tricycle kick to beat Portugal 2-1 to one, and that it brought him to tears when he was watching. Not only does a tricycle kick not exist, uh, they didn't beat Portugal. It was a tie 2-2. Two to, two to two. Then the reporter asks another man, uh, Some people say Landon Donovan's play has been non-existent in this World Cup. What do you think? And the guy goes, No, no, I don't think that at all. I, I, think, he's, I think he's still good. He's got one more in him. He's got another good shot left in him. Another claimed that they were shocked when they saw Landon Donovan bite another player. My favorite one of all, people were giving their opinion on whether Landon Donovan was outperforming Lando Calrissian. Yes, the character from Star Wars. And one said, no, 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 I think think Landon's better. He's just been underperforming. So as I'm watching all of this and laughing my head off, at the same time I was supposed to be studying my sermon and uh, it got me thinking, what would it look like if they were to do a Lie Witness News Jesus edition? What questions would they ask and how would people answer? Sir, You're a Christian? Yeah, definitely. Uh, What do you think about Jesus' words in the Gospel of Oprah that all religions lead to God? Oh, you know, that's that's what I've always appreciated about Jesus. 
uh, ma'am, I, I see you're wearing a cross. Tell me your opinion about the, the latest revelation coming out of Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church that God has actually officially commanded the United States to change the names of every day of the week to Friday. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I've always thought that that would be a good idea, every day being Friday. I'm glad God's behind it. Sir, how do you view the way that Jesus taught that the Bible is only useful for the first century? You can imagine <laughs> these things happening. I'm sure that the results of this interview, if it were to actually happen, would be as hilariously dumb as they would be tragically sad. But I don't think it takes a lie witness news interview to see how many people claim that they are followers of Christ without actually having lives that match up that truth about him. People who are walking in darkness yet actually claim to be walking in the light. So what I want us to see today in 1 John is that walking in the light will come with a commitment to following the God who is the light. What I want us to see is this, and this is something that I'll be repeating several times throughout the sermon. And uh, Daryl will put this on the screen behind me. Tangible evidence of true faith is a cycle of repentance and a striving toward holiness. Tangible evidence of a true faith is a cycle of repentance and a striving toward holiness. Those are marks of true faith. So, hopefully in your Bibles you have turned to 1 John. We'll be looking in chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 6, and the words will be behind me on the screen. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So, John begins this, uh, this chapter by addressing his audience with the term, my little children. Now, this is another term that is completely unique to John. Last week, we looked at uh, some language that's completely unique to John in that John is one of the only ones in the entire Bible that, that describes God using a verb without a definite article. Here, he uses this term, my little children. And there are two people that use this term in the Bible, John and Jesus. And when Jesus said it, John was the one to record it. So... This is, in one way, clear evidence that we have of the ways that the love of Christ had softened John's heart over the course of his life. If you remember a couple of uh, of weeks ago, when we talked in the introduction about John and who he was, we talked about the fact that Jesus gave John and his brother the nickname Sons of Thunder, 
the sons of thunder. They were gruff, egotistical goons when Jesus called them. But the more time they spent with Jesus, the more they were softened by his love. And so by the end of John's life, it's said that his nickname at the end of his life was the Apostle of Love. And this term here is evidence of that softening. So it's clear that what he is communicating to the people in this passage, what he is communicating to his audience, he is doing so out of a tender, gracious, compassionate place. So this is John putting his arm around their shoulders, softly speaking truth to a people that he loves dearly. And that is really, really important because it shows that he loves them enough to tell them some difficult truth. We live in a society that would have us believe that to love someone, you must affirm anything that they think or believe at any given time. They would have us believe that to love someone is to confirm someone's every desire. And if you tell them to change, or that you don't agree with their way of thinking or their way of living, that is tantamount to hatred. It's practically un-American to disrespect someone's right to think, feel, or live however they want. But John shows us the opposite. He shows us that if you truly love someone, if you really care about someone, you will not just go along with whatever. You won't affirm or confirm just everything. There will be opportunity to share difficult truth. Firstly, we see here in him using this term that there is a relationship that is so close that you have the freedom to use such a term of endearment. After all, you wouldn't just go around calling anyone my little children, right? There would have to be a relationship in place that was close enough and strong enough for you to use a tender term like that. There has to be an established, long-term pattern of loving and leading in that way to use that term. But once that relationship is in place, once it's there... At that point, you can put your arm around someone and look them in the eye and speak truth that is very difficult to hear. So, what are the truths that are very difficult that John wants us to hear? What are the things that he says in this passage that function as litmus test interview questions on lie witness news? Point number one. To know Christ is to follow Christ. To know Christ is to follow Christ. One of the things that makes lie witness news so entertaining is to watch someone so confidently assert something that clearly is not true and then continue to stand by it, even make it worse when the reporter is prompting them to continue. When you see someone who's decked out in a team's gear and they claim to be a huge fan, I'm a diehard fan, I've always been a fan of whatever, you would expect that they actually know something about the team, right? 
so when you have a person wearing a Golden State Warriors jersey and a Golden State Warriors hat, uh, you would... Uh, expect that they'd know something about the Golden State Warriors. And so if you begin to ask them questions about the team and you say, uh, who's your favorite player on the team? And they say, Curry. And then you say, well, we'll name another player on the team. And they can't. Probably the first evidence that they don't know anything about the team except that Steph Curry plays for them. They can't name a single other person. But then if you start completely making up names of other players or using the names of B-list actors from movies and TV shows and asking about their level of play, well, then it's completely clear that this person doesn't really follow the Warriors. They'll put on a jersey, they'll put on a hat, and they'll cheer when things are going well. But in their day-to-day life, the Golden State Warriors don't occupy a single thought in their minds. John tells us, that some things will be true of our daily lives if we actually know Jesus. There are things that we'll say and do, and there are things that we won't say and won't do because he's not just a jersey and a hat. He's the Lord of our every moment. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him, If we keep his commandments. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Now on the surface at first glance that almost seems a little bit legalistic. Right? Is this talking about earning our salvation? No. This is not referring to legalism. This is not referring to, if I just follow all the rules well enough, then God will love me. What this is, is it's about putting an attitude in our hearts. An attitude that says, because of God's faithfulness to me, I am going to be a light walker. See, obedience flows out of salvation. It flows naturally from salvation. First comes salvation, and from that comes true obedience, not the other way around. We are not earning our salvation. We are not obeying in order that he will save us. It is that because he has saved us, we choose to obey. So think about it like this. Say you are from a war-torn nation and you flee to the United States in order to protect your family. And let's say that you are treated so well upon your arrival, and you are cared for so well by American citizens. Let's say you and your family are given a completely new future, a brand new lease on life, a new hope. And so your desire is to become a United States citizen yourself. You, you love America for these reasons, well, what do you think you will do? You'll, you'll start looking at the laws, at the customs, at the practices of America as your own. You will start talking like an American, thinking like an American, acting like American. You'll do everything that you can to become a productive member of American society. Not so that you can earn your citizenship, but because you're so thankful for your citizenship. That is how it is with God. 
We do not earn our sonship. We do not earn our adoption. The fact is, God has rescued us. He has shown us immeasurable love. He has adopted us into his family. And because we're so humbled, because we're so appreciative, and because we want to return that love and devotion back to him, we at that point begin to start acting like Christ followers. We start adopting the customs and practices and laws and ways of thinking of a Christ follower. And when we are doing those things out of a response to God's love, we start fashioning our lives uh, after God out of, out of devotion, it's at that point, John tells us, that we know we have come to know him. He also shows us the flip side of that. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever says, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, die hard, always have been, and yet doesn't know a single player on the team, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is such a clear statement that it hurts in our culture. I mean, this is about as exclusive as you can possibly get. This is not an incredibly inclusive statement. And and that, of course, is one of the pillars of American society. He's telling us that whoever says, I'm a Christian, but doesn't live the way that Christ tells us to live, John says, that person is a liar. They are on lie witness news, Jesus edition. Uh, Excuse me, you, sir, with the uh, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Hi there. I I noticed uh, that you just came out of that strip club. Is it because you are saved by grace, not by works? Exactly. See, you know, I love that about Jesus. He's gracious and merciful, so I I just do me, and he always takes me back. I was in there uh, just delivering some lunch to one of the dancers, my girlfriend. Her name's Trixie. John tells us very clearly that if we actually know Jesus, our desire will be to follow him. In that, salvation and emulation are intrinsically tied. Salvation and emulation are intrinsically tied. If you have been truly saved by Christ, your desire will be to emulate Christ. To live like him. So I'll repeat what I said earlier. Tangible evidence of true faith is a cycle of repentance and a striving toward holiness. True faith is a cycle of repentance and a striving toward holiness. Notice the first thing that he says in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing this so that you may not sin. What does he mean by so that you may not sin? 
Is this referring to sinlessness? Is he saying, I'm writing this so that you will come to a point in your life where you no longer make any mistakes, where you no longer sin against God, where you live perfectly? That's why I'm writing. No, obviously not. Sinlessness on this side of heaven is impossible. That is the clear message of Scripture. We, we find passages like Paul in Romans chapter 7 talking about the battle that wages within himself between the old nature and the new nature where he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing those things. He's battling with the flesh. So when John here says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he's talking about holiness being our aim. It's not sinlessness. It is striving toward holiness. That means we're coming to a place where we're, we're not excusing sin in our lives, where we're not giving it room in our hearts, where we're not holding things back or, or hiding pieces of our lives away from God, where we say to him, Lord, you can have most of me, but not this. Where we say, you can have all of these different areas, but, but don't ask me about money. God, you can have everything else, don't ask me about my relationships. God, you can have everything else, but, but this is mine. John tells us he is writing these things so that we may no longer do that. So that we would aim to give God everything. See, it's easy to put on a jersey and a hat and say, I believe in God. It's easy to come to church, to sing songs, to listen to one of the greatest preachers in the modern era. Am I right? I was hoping for more hearty amens. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Facts. No cap. But it's not so easy not so easy to make the commitment to have Jesus be Lord of every single moment. And so you have to ask yourself, have I actually done that? See, I don't want anyone here or anyone listening online to take for granted the message of salvation. Because there are so many people who come to church, who have believed in God, who have who have put on the hat and the jersey and said, I'm a Christian. But have you made the commitment to follow him in every area of your life? Have you asked Jesus to be your Lord, not just your Savior? Because there's a huge difference. And if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior either. You can't have one Without the other. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Whoever says, I abide in Christ, must make it the goal of their lives to actually emulate Christ. Part of this means that we don't invent our own Jesus to follow. 
This is something that, that I talked about in a sermon last year, that many people create God in their own image rather than submitting to the truth that it's really the other way around, that we are created in his image. And when we watch the people on Lie Witness News, what we see is that these, per- these people have a, a fabricated version of reality in their minds. And that they're all very committed to this fabricated version of reality. And that makes them look silly. The truth is, a lot of people do that with God. A lot of people do that with Jesus. They'll say, my Jesus wouldn't do X, Y, Z. My Jesus wouldn't push anyone out. My Jesus wouldn't tell anyone no. My Jesus wouldn't call that a sin. My Jesus would X, Y, Z. Well, in the words of J.D. Greer, you don't get your own personal Jesus. You don't get to make up what Jesus did or said or claimed. You don't get to write for him what he writes himself. If we are to abide in him, we must be committed to walk in the way that he actually walked, doing the things that he actually said, following the commands that he actually gave. If you have been saved by Christ, you follow him exactly the way that he is. Now, this should naturally bring up the question, what happens when I screw this up? Because if there is one guarantee that I can make standing up here, it is this. You and I will screw this up. Probably none more than me. If the expectation is that I walk the way Jesus walked, that I keep his commandments, that I keep his word, kind of feels like that puts a whole lot of pressure on me, doesn't it? After all, Once again, John said that he wrote these things so that I may not sin. Well, what happens when I do? The second half of verse 1 going into verse 2 is one of the most beautiful places in the Bible. After saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he says this, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, John knows that even the most dedicated believer is going to fall into sin from time to time. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to screw up. Old habits are going to die hard. But when we sin, We are promised that there is an advocate on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, breaking that down a bit, because there's a number of really incredible truths, he says that Jesus is an advocate, an advocate on our behalf. Uh, The word there in the the Greek is perikaleo, uh, transliterated, it's the paraclete. And it's usually used in reference to the Holy Spirit. But here, it's used in reference to Jesus. This term, advocate, think of it like a court of law. You have committed a crime, and so now you are on trial. You have a defense attorney who will plead your case before the judge. That is what is pictured with the term advocate. John says that Jesus is an advocate 
He is our attorney pleading our case continually before the judge. He is the go-between that we talked about last week so that we can approach the unapproachable light of the Father. But here's the thing. When Jesus is advocating on our behalf, he is not pleading our case on the basis of our own innocence. He's not pleading our case saying, oh, uh, Sway's fine. He, he doesn't sin. He, uh, he's following John's words here that John wrote so that he may not sin any longer. That's not what's happening at all. He's not pleading my innocence. What he is pleading is that the price of sin has already been paid. He is saying, judge, I have paid for this sin already. Judge, I have paid for this sin already. Judge, I have paid for this sin already. And I'm sure it's like a broken record with the number of times that I sin every day. And yet every time he stands before the Father and says, Judge, I have paid for this sin already. Next, John tells us that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, Jesus didn't just pay the price for my sin. On the cross, he did that. He paid the price for the sins that I committed. But that's not all he did. He also lived a perfectly righteous life. So not only did he pay my sin debt, he also lived the life that I should have lived. He lived righteously and the only person to ever successfully do that. So he did the payment and he also does the deposit. He pays my debt and he deposits his righteousness on my behalf. He, living a perfect life, lived the life that I should have lived. And he, dying for my sins on the cross, died the death that I should have died. This means that my salvation is not by my own works, it's by his. And so he shows grace in imputing that righteousness to me. And then finally, it says that he is the propitiation for our sins. It's a big, fancy Bible word, propitiation. The word simply means that because of his sacrifice, the just requirement of sin, the appeasing the holy wrath of God, that price has been paid. So propitiation means that by his sacrifice, he has cleansed me and he has satisfied the righteous anger of the Father. He has paid the price. Now, interestingly, it says, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean that everyone is saved? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is that salvation is available to everyone. The price that Jesus paid is efficacious for all who might believe. So, for example, if I were to purchase 10 tickets to a Notre Dame football game, and I invited 10 friends to come with me, but only five of them decided to come, well, unfortunately, that would leave me with five extra tickets. And I have wasted that money (laughs) in that regard. But if those five friends who have rejected my offer had come, I'd have had the tickets to hand to them. They would be be able to come in and experience uh, that game together. I've paid the price for 10, but only five chose to accept that free gift and enjoy the football game with me. 
But regardless, the price for all of the tickets was paid for with my money. That is what it means when he says that he's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So what that tells us is that when we sin, and we do, when we sin, we have a righteous, justice-satisfying, loving, gracious advocate on our behalf who will cleanse us. And remember, we looked at this last week in chapter 1, verse 9, where he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible promise. What an incredible offer. And what should that lead us to other than surrender? Commitment. I'll repeat it again one last time. Tangible evidence of a true faith is a cycle of repentance and a striving toward holiness. So when we sin, we don't just shrug and say NBD. We truly repent. We fall down on our knees and we say, Father, I know that you have already paid the price for this sin. This is already covered. I hand this over to you. I know that your righteousness has been imputed on my behalf. Will you pick me up and cleanse me from unrighteousness? Will you help me to get up from here and strive toward holiness? And that is a cycle that will continue on and on and on, over and over and over, until we reach heaven. When we sin, we come before him and we lay it at his feet. We surrender, we submit, we receive his free gift, and then we get up clean and we strive towards holiness. That is what it means to walk in the light. That is what a light walker does. If that is not the practice, the cycle, the pattern of the way that you live, perhaps you're on Lie Witness News, Jesus edition. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray that no one here or listening would move past this free gift that's offered. God, I pray that all of us would recognize what you give to us. Lord, that if there are ways that you need to convict us of sin, that you would convict us. If, if there are areas that we're holding back, that we would submit those things to you. If there are ways in which we are not giving you everything, God, I pray that tonight would be the night that you call our hearts to give you everything. Lord, I pray that the cycle of our lives would be filled with repentance and striving toward holiness. God, I pray that if there are any here or listening who have never given their heart to you, who have never come to the place where they have said, I want you to be the Lord, the master of everything, not just a hat and a jersey, but in charge of every moment, that tonight would be that night. God, thank you for calling us to a life that looks like yours, that you didn't just pay the penalty, you also lived the life, and you invite us to follow after you, to be your disciples. Lord, I pray that this church would be filled with disciples, 
with light walkers who walk in the way that you walked. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, Daryl will play our closing song.